Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than wearing a Kangol hat on your head backwards. Yes, I'm talking to you, Samuel Jackson. My name's Ash Rose, and yes, yes, I know, we're back longer than I said I would. I know, I apologise. Um, it's been a busy few months um, here at the AK Towers, just because, uh, personally, I've taken on a few other projects, um, away from my role at Kick Magazine, as well as a couple other bits, and I've got a six-month-year-old baby as well, so been very busy and um, we just haven't managed to get a roll of weeks where we can get this uh, 90s nostalgia ship recorded but we are that is changing we are not going away i know i keep saying that i'm not lying to you guys um, we want to keep this nostalgia trip going. We want to share those 90s memories with you all. Um, not just myself and getting some guests on as well. And it will happen um, in the next couple of weeks. I've got one planned. We're going to kick off the new proper season. Um, hopefully with Mr. John Devlin, who's been on before a kit expert. And we're going to go back and look at some 90s football kits that we didn't quite cover in the kit podcast we did last season. So that will kick off season two. Um, two weeks today. Um, just scheduling the timings. But keep on eye on the Twitter feed uh, at, at AK90s uh, for more information on that. And then going forward, we've got some great themes, some great guests all lined up, and we will be with you on a week-to-week, if not two-week basis, like we were last season, so you won't be missing us for too long for season two. So again, apologies that it's taken a little bit longer to get it sorted. Um, the guys at West 12 Media have been absolutely fantastic and understanding in the uh, what's happened. So um, they want to push it out. We want to get it out and we will do. So keep with us, keep listening, keep following us on Twitter uh, for more news and more shows because we're not going anywhere. AK's 90s is going to live on forever inside that weird 10 years that was the 1990s in football. Um, today's show though, I thought... It's just me, so apologies that uh, you may have to listen to just my voice uh, this week. Uh, I hope I don't drone on too much about my love for 1990s football. Uh, But what I I thought I'd do is go over a few things that... I mean, we've done a lot of podcast themes. We did, what, sort of 35 shows, I think it was, last season, which covered a number of different subjects in the end. But there are always little things that we didn't quite cover for each show. They were very tiny, so there wouldn't be something that I would go back and talk about again, um, because there would be no point to make a whole show about it. But I thought I'd cover just a few little tidbits of the 90s that we didn't quite get in certain areas. Uh, Just talk about them and some of my own memories of them and what effect they had on the decade uh, and then tie those all into one sort of podcast so I suppose you could call this another mini episode of AK 90s before we get into the real stuff and we can chat through with some of our regulars and hopefully some new guests um, on the podcast as well Uh, a couple of little news bits before I get into everything else though Um, thank you to everyone who did vote for us um, at the FBA awards unfortunately such was the list of vast vast long list that it was of people involved in that in the podcast we didn't quite make the shortlist for the awards uh, which I think I think they're this month actually um, but a lot of you voted uh, a lot of people uh, a lot of guests former footballers uh, voted as well which uh, which was really nice to see um, people that have been on the show so thank you to everyone who voted maybe next year if we can get this back in uh, full swing before the the votes next year maybe we can get on the list and get a few more votes for us but thank you very much to everyone thank you very much thank you very much to everyone who voted it's much appreciated it's nice to see how much you're enjoying the podcast and the, the ride through 1990s football um, i'm not the only geek out there who still looks back at that decade and, and looks fun learning it so thank you very much for that 
I also wanted to say thank you uh, to someone on Twitter, actually. Oh, his name's going to escape me now. I'm going to have to go on the Twitter feed. Um, but he put on his own footballing CV, which uh, Dan Barker, that was his name, um, did his own uh, 90s football CV um, on his uh, website. He's Barker's Football Musings, uh, WordPress.com. Um, check it out. I've retweeted it, but I'll, I'll put it up again. Um for anyone who hasn't listened before, when guests come on the show, we ask them their 90s CV, which uh, first time around is players of their own club, players of their of the 90s in general. Then we go on to goals and matches. Uh, and Dan did a selection of his own. I think uh, he chose Eric Cantona uh, as his uh, main player. So I'm assuming he was a main United fan. And also we had, we had mentioned Matt Letizia and uh, and also mentioned Trevor Sinclair's famous Bicycle call get goal for QPR as well, um, which is always good to see. Um, I know there was a bicycle kick last night in the Man United Fenerbahce game that everyone was talking about, but hey, come on. It wasn't as good as Travis and Claire's, was it? Let's be honest. Uh, so thank you, Dan. Cheers for that. If anyone else wants to do that, if you want to tell me your 90s football CV, I don't expect you to write a complete blog about it, but just stick it on Twitter or a couple of Merlin stickers. It's always good to hear. I love hearing who people uh, liked in the 90s, especially for their own club, because they can be really random as well. Um, I mean, my own, being Roy Wegley, is probably not the first name uh, that people expect as a QPR fan in the 90s, you know, more than Les Ferdinand's or Travis Sinclair's, the Andy Sintons, who were all fantastic footballers. But for my own personal sort of growing up, Roy Wegley was, was almost my hero. And it's my aim, if I do this show until I die, to get Roy Wegley on the phone. I'm almost there. We've been in email contact, but he just doesn't want to talk about his football career. But come on, Roy, you know you want to. Um, and my last little sort of news tip, well, it's not really news, it's just... Uh, sort of information i wondered if you guys caught the uh, documentary that was on itv uh, a few weeks ago it was called uh, when football changed forever i think it's still an itv player actually and it was a good insight into the last season of the football league before it became the premier league um so 91 92 and it was a good look back at how things was compl- as the title said how football changed since that point so it was really really interesting watch i do if you into United football, and I assume you are because you're listening to this podcast. I do advise get on the ITV player and check that out because uh, it was a good watch, and uh, it's always good to have 90s documentaries as well to look back on some memorable moments as well to back up what we talk about on the podcast. You know, I'm a sucker for the Premier League years on Sky Sports, although I don't seem to show as many of them anymore, especially the earlier ones. You know, they seem to show more of kind of the more recent ones. Maybe the audience is changing, but I'd love to see those. Maybe maybe release them on a DVD box set. I'd love that Premier League years, 91 to 92, oh sorry, 92, 93, then full on, that'd be amazing. That and Dream Team, that's what we need, Sky. If anyone from Sky is listening, I want box sets of the Premier League years, especially in the 90s, and Dream Team. Really, really want Dream Team. Because somebody said to me that all the episodes of Dream Team are on YouTube. Now I can't find them. I managed to find one, the first episode. It was really fun reliving uh, the first episode with Dean Hocknall and his naughty night with, uh, was it Georgina Jacobs in the ballroom? I think it was. The, the chairman's daughter on the night of his debut, yeah. I've gone off on a tangent there on Dream Team, but anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, sorry. But yeah, get those in the box set. Anyway, so today's podcast. So what I'm doing, as I said at the top of the show, is just going through a few things that kind of weren't missed intentionally, but there's so much to talk about on certain themes that sometimes things get missed, and some of these will be quite obscure, but I just thought I'd just mention them, and it's just a look back at some of the things that people may not remember in the 90s. All all I want to do here is knock those brains in and say, oh, do you remember that? Because I love it when I don't remember something, and someone reminds me of something in the 90s, and I get that warm, fuzzy feeling back again of nostalgia. So hopefully some of these things I'm going to mention in the next few minutes, and we'll, we'll do that to you as well. We also do have an interview as well. I was lucky enough, I mentioned it 
last time on the the season two trailer that we were meant to speak to Ron Atkinson. We have done. Um, Big Ron, will, I'll put that in the middle of this show, so a good interview with Ron. He's got a new book out, um, which is uh, part of why we were able to speak to him, which is uh, part autobiographical, autobiographical, it's quite hard to get out, um, part sort of looking back at his time and looking forward to what it's like as a manager. Obviously, he's not been out of the, he's been out of the public eye for quite a long time for, for reasons we won't go into and we didn't go into on the podcast, mainly because they weren't 90, so I got out of that one nice nicely. Um, but yeah, good interview with Big Ron coming up. But let's go back um, so, and look back at some of the things we, we didn't mention. I think the first thing I'd like to talk about, really, and it's something I've toyed with doing a whole show about. It just hasn't come across. We may still do because it's a subject that people do like to talk about more, possibly more than I do. This could be a personal preference thing while we haven't just quite got round to talking about them. And it's football boots. Um, I... As you guys well know from regular listeners on the podcast, I'm a massive football kit geek. Um, there's, we did a show earlier in the season uh, with John Devlin of True Colours, uh, a couple other guys as well uh, on the subject, which was great because the 90s, of course, had those garish kits. And that's what's very fond. I'm very fond of very close to my heart, uh, 90s kits. And that's why we'll do another podcast, hopefully with John in the next coming weeks. Um, but boots are something that, although I, I football boots... I had as a kid because I did play a lot of football, not very well, mind you, and that's continued into my adult life. It's not, they're not as, I'm not as geeky, I don't sort of geek out at football boots as much as I do football kits, um, especially now. I mean, I'm still in, I still love my football kits now, and it's one of my favourite parts of the summer, just sitting there watching the Twitter feed and hoping clubs release new football kit pictures. Whereas football boots, I mean, they're released quite regularly, a lot of the technical stuff is, it kind of goes over my head. Um, so I haven't really been, I don't ever have been sort of geeked out, I suppose, as much on football boots. But in the 90s, there really were some major players and some major sort of monumental moments in, in football boot history, uh, to be honest. And I think there's there's no sort of better place and no more important place to start talking about football boots than with the boot that kind of changed it all, really. And that's the Adidas Predator. Um, it was a boot that, you know, is... Only till I think Adidas have stopped making them. I think last year was, or maybe the beginning of this year, it became signed of the end of the Predator. But it, in the nineties, they really were the boot to have. I mean, they were launched in nineteen ninety four. They were the brainchild of former Liverpool midfielder Craig Johnson, um, who dedicated his own time and money to the idea. Uh, with the simple premise was that to add rubber strips that Johnson used off a tennis ball to give better grip and control of the ball. The design was taken to Adidas and they created these rubber bridges in the boot. And it's the ones we still, they still used up to the, the current day, actually. And, I mean, they were so different looking, weren't they? I mean, they had, they had these weird ridges, especially the early ones. And I think what Adidas did eventually was kind of make mould those kind of ridges that are meant to help you curl the ball. And they did for some people, being a, not being a very good footballer, I don't think I curl the ball regardless of what boots I'm wearing. But, you know, for guys who who were regulars on the football pitch in the Sunday League, and then the professionals, guys like Beckham and Sedan and Gerard, who were them very early on, um, they did really kind of make the difference. But those early boots really had those big ridges on them, didn't they, before they were moulded into the leather. Um, so they were really kind of groundbreaking, groundbreaking at the time. Um, Twelve variations of the boot were actually made, um, four of which came in the 1990s. And as I said, Sedan and Beckham uh, were two of the main players to wear them and they were launched by the, the former Liverpool midfielder Craig Johnson so yeah Predators were definitely a big starting point in the 90s uh, well not starting point but big player in the 90s because before that Adidas also had the Coupe Mondiales 
which people remember well, the World Cups, as they're called, sort of traditional football boots, as they were, black boots, you know, like the kind that everyone wants to wear. And everyone, you know, the traditionalists in this all think people should still be wearing those straight black boots, perfectly moulded. So Adidas kind of, that was where Adidas came from, Predator, Coupe de Mondays, those were the two big Adidas boots of the 1990s. Looking at Nike, I mean, I remember I had Nike Tiempos. They were from the, some of the first boots that, that I ever had. Again, very simple style, very, you know, black, big Nike tick down the side. I think mine had a blue outline. Um, again, they, they were launched mid-90s as well. Um, Nike were quite late, actually, to the, to the football market. It was really where the 90s were they came into it, kind of mid-90s. Uh, the 1994 World Cup was when they sort of entered the soccer market as it was then. And Tiempo was their first boot. And I think actually 10 players... In the final, in the World Cup final in 1994, were wearing Tiempo boots. So that's not bad going. Um, and they had guys like Eric Cantona and Ian Wright. And of course, they had that brilliant advert by the time, sort of 96-ish time, the, the Devil advert, which had Cantona and Ian Wright in it, with and Figo, Cliver, Egg Davids, all those guys in it. And you had the Eric Cantona, and it was au revoir, wasn't it? And he hit the ball of the devil. Um, and I think on from that, they had then the first ever Mercurial boot, which of course is still going now in, in various different forms. Um, but in 1998, the first ever one was launched by, of course, Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo R9 for the World Cup in France. Um, so that was another important boot. I think that's what, that one's very iconic. I think people still look back on um, that boot as one of the sort of main players of the 90s that and predators so yeah two big boots there from two big companies who are obviously still big players in in the football market um puma kings were another one again we're looking at the all these boots and a lot of them are very much sort of black boots but just different kind of styles and different by different makes puma kings um very nostalgic they were probably the most famous piece of that puma did of that of that of that era um, they were first made actually for Portugal legend Isabio as a, as a homage to him when in the 1966 FIFA Golden Boot. So they go back really, really far. Um, but in the 90s, it was one of the leaders and in, in the boot market. And it's from Switch Up Design, and it's one of the Puma Kings. They come out in black, and then they became kind of the first company along with Valsport. Remember them, Valsport, to start doing boots in different colours. So you had the white Puma Kings. Uh, I think there were sort of red ones as well. Uh, Red Puma Kings as well, so they were another boot. And as I mentioned, Valsport started doing all different kind of colours then. I remember seeing sort of yellow boots and um, some proper sort of blues and greens. And that was when they became the sort of first team, um, first, sorry, first company to do coloured boots. Obviously now it's, it's a given, it's the rarity that you see black boots now. Uh, Umbro, of course, had the Speciali, which was worn a lot of by Alan Shearer and uh, Michael Owen. Later in the decade, they were, they were quite famous um, boots for, for those. Um, also worth a mention, Reebok, Ryan Giggs, big, big man for Reebok in the 1990s. Um, he was the chosen supplier of them, as well as Andy Cole and John Fashionu. Quasar, there's a blast from the past, yeah, Quasar boots. Lineker wore them for a while. Matt Letissier as well wore Quasar, along with High Tech as well. Um, so they were names that kind of don't make boots anymore. Old Sport was another one. Uze Rosler was a big man for the Old Sport brand. I remember him having an advert. And I think, was it what most offenders see of Uwe Rosler? And I think it was a picture of the back of his shirt. Um, I remember them from one of the back of Match magazines. And they were, I mean, we they, we could do and probably will do a whole podcast where I can talk in more detail uh, about football boots, especially with people who are more in the know, which we'll, we'll organise at some point. But, you know, I haven't mentioned companies like Arrow and Hummel, Fila, Diodora, Lotto and Mizuno that all made football boots in the 1990s. Moving on then to stuff that was uh, 
where those football boots were used. I wanted to quickly talk about a couple of cup competitions that are no longer with us. We talked about the Cup Winners' Cup back in our European Nights uh, podcast back early in the season. We had Donald Parrish on, big Norwich fan, of course. They had big um, nights in, in the UEFA Cup against Bayern Munich. But the Cup Winners' Cup was was a great co- competition. Manchester United won in 1991. Chelsea won it very late in the decade as well. But there was also two other cups that were very much sort of, or one of them in particular, completely was an, a 1990s competition. Well, it, it reminds me that it was started in the 80s, but it does remind me of a 1990s competition. And that was the Zenith Data Systems Cup. What with English teams banned from Europe in 1985, the decision was made to introduce a new cup competition to go alongside the FA Cup and League Cup. And the full Members' Cup was launched and, and consisted of teams only from the top two divisions, with the inaugural competition being won by Chelsea in a 5-4 victory over Manchester City at Wembley in March 1986. So that was the 80s, but then it was later sponsored by Simud, and then in the 1990s, computer hardware company Zenith Data Systems became the sponsor. And that's how I remember it, the ZDS Cup. Because it's such a random name as well, and I think Sky in their early days, before they sort of gobbled up all the coverage of all the of the cups they had the zds and i always remember their adverts uh advertising the games and it was such seemed such a random competition but well but obviously with the missing europe it became kind of quite a, a semi-important one because it was it was a piece of silverware uh, at the end of the day and there were three finals in the 1990s uh with chelsea beating middlesbrough crystal palace overcoming everton and finally nottingham forest's 1992 win over southampton um, unfortunately, the competition was then cancelled with the launch of the Premier League, but it does remain kind of one of those like do you remember competitions? And I, I certainly do. I don't think QPR did very well in it. That's would come as no surprise to anyone who's who's a QPR fan and knows how terrible we are in cup competitions. But it was uh, uh, one of those sort of random '90s ones that, that's good to look back on. The other one I wanted to mention as well is the Anglo-Italian Cup. So following the removal of the Zenith State Systems Cup, this was a fondly remembered continental competition. Its roots, actually, they um, they date back to the 70s when the competition was first launched and sort of played intermittently till, till 1986. Then in 1992, the version consisted of just teams from England's newly named First Division and Serie B in Italy. So basically the, the sort of second divisions of, uh, of each country. All 24 teams competed in the preliminary rounds with the main competition coming down to four groups of four from each nation. The top two from each then progressed to a, semi, a regional semi-final for a trip to Wembley to face the opposing best. The competition, I think it lasted four seasons, with Cremonese over Derby, Brescia over Notts County, Notts County over Ascoli in 1995, the only English win of the competition, and then finally Genoa, who won 5-2 over Port Vale. Uh, the competition was abandoned the following season, citing increasing violence and failure to organise fixture dates. Again, another really random one, wasn't it? I mean, look at those finals. We Derby team seemed to do very well in that competition. Maybe that's why Stefano Aranio signed for them later in the decade. Maybe you remembered there. Anglo-Italian Cup exploits of the early 90s. And then Port Vale Genoa. I mean, it's a very strange fixture and a very strange competition, but one I wouldn't be opposed to to organising somehow. I mean, it's always... I know we have a lot of football and they always talk about winter break, but second division teams, you fancy that? That might be a bit different, mess, isn't it? I don't know if you could fit it in somewhere. Being a QPR fan, I know that we'd be out of the FA Cup in the third round, so we'll have plenty of time uh, to play another cup competition. So we'll welcome any Serie B opposition if they want to bring back... The, the Anglo-Italian Cup. Uh, talking of competitions as well, there was also in the 90s uh, a competition called the Evening Standard Fives. Now, this is very London-centric, hence why it was called the Evening Standard Fives. I mean, it was a five-a-side competition, uh, and it was kind of 
a midweek competition. So it's trying to find now a, a week when it would even be possible. Um, but it was a part, and it was full of teams, actual actual full time professional teams, put in on a five a side football team, and having a competition. Uh, it seems like a bizarre concept now. Can you imagine Arsene Wenger just letting five of his players go and go and compete in a five-a-side competition in a week where they haven't got a fixture between Champions League, FA Cup, Capital One Cup or EFL Cup, whatever it's called now. But it, it was quite a heated, competitive competition in the early 90s and, and teams used to put out strong squads. Um, again, I think QBR put out a very strong squad a couple of times. But the, the team that kind of dominated the, the London Fives for, for a couple of seasons. It was Wickham Wanderers, believe it or not. And Martin O'Neill took, the seat, took this competition very seriously. I mean, all the Capitals' finest teams took part. And it it was a rare treat. And I, I just don't know where it came from and, and what, how it happened. But it lasted until 1994 um, and when Wickham won the final tournament. And again, it was a five-side tournament. You used to see big names playing from Arsenal, Chelsea... Um, Tottenham, Wimbledon, West Ham, they used to bring out their best five-a-side teams for a mini-competition. Again, that's something I wouldn't mind seeing in, in today's in today's game, if you can find a spare moment to, to even consider such a thing. Going away off the pitch then, um, I wanted to talk about um, a few things on-screen, actually. Um, we did a couple of on-screen podcasts, um, sort of the back end of last year, which are great. Go back and listen to them. Um, again, a lot of these that I'm mentioning um, we've done a lot of pod- we, did, we we talked extensively about the subject, and I'm just filling in the gaps basically uh, of what we didn't mention. And something when we talked about uh, TV and football and football and TV, we did one each where we talked TV football coverage, and then sort of football on TV being Dream Team again, and the Hurricanes and everything associated with with football. Um, do I not like that? And but we didn't really talk about adverts. I think we briefly, briefly mentioned them, but there was a lot of great footballing adverts in the 1990s. And by great, I mean cringy most of the time. Um, I'm just going to run through a few here. I mean, there was the, the first one I wanted to mention was the classic LucasAid Sport advert. Everyone's favourite get well drink that went all sporty during this decade with LucasAid Sport. It was produced an advert to launch the new brand and they had kids up and down the country trying to recreate it. John Barnes was the star chosen to front and it was showed him enjoying the new soft drink, then calmly volleying the can into the bin. Never had bins been more danger than footy fans thinking they could do the same. Alan Shearer, of course, would start in the later drinks ad for the company, but it was that John Barnes one that everybody went mental for. And I, I do remember that, trying to kick a can into a bin all the time, especially if it was a LucasAid Sport can. Do they still do lemon and lime LucasAid Sport? I used to bloody love that stuff. Um, away from that, uh, Peter Hutt, I think this one came out a few weeks ago where Gareth Southgate was named the New England manager. And, of course, remember the classic Peter had advert with him, Chris Waddle and Stuart Pearce after all of them combined their penalty misses to, to break to the comedic advert where um, they shared a pizza and I think Gareth Southgate was wearing a bag on his head. Uh, again, very humorous at the time. Walker's Chris was obviously a famous one. Gary Lineker's still there, still doing that. And it was in the 1990s when he started. Um, he fronted their campaign and we had Salt and Lineker. And then we also had that famous advert with Paul Gascoigne where he was crying. Uh, later in the decade, we also had Cheese and Owen as well when Michael Owen flirted with the Walker's Chris brand as well. 
uh, Reebok did some great advertising campaigns in the 1990s. Um, my favourite being, and this uh, I remember this, I did this in the uh, AK90s book, was the sort of other careers, I suppose you call it, campaign where they had uh, Ryan Giggs, Andy Culpitch, Michael and Dennis Burkamp talking about uh, what they'd do if they weren't footballers. So basically the, the, uh, there are other boots, but then there are other careers was the tagline. So they had Ryan Giggs as a flower seller on a, on a motorway. Uh, I think Andy Cole was in a fish and chip shop. Schmeichel was a Danish pig farmer and Burkamp worked in a cheese factory. So there could have been careers, basically the premise, if if they hadn't had Reebok boots, this is what the careers they would have gone down. But they were very fun adverts and it was it was good to see. I did obviously a lot with Ryan Giggs as well. Um, he was the lead sort of face of Reebok in uh, in that era. And I think they did a campaign all about Ryan Giggs and I think Andy, um, Robbie Williams, Tom Jones and Anna Freya was in there talking about it. I think it was like, This Is My Planet, I think it was called. Something like that. But Giggs was always the main player for Reebok. One of my favourite ad- advertising campaigns in the 90s was, the, was when Coca-Cola sponsored uh, the League Cup. Um, and they used to do these adverts in the newspapers beforehand where we had the Coke, two Coke cans together, whoever was in the final. And they changed the Coca-Cola can colours to that of uh, the teams that were playing. Um, which was really odd to see as well because, you know, the standard Coke can is obviously red and white. But I remember the year it was Aston Villa v Manchester United. It was that 94 League Cup final. So Aston Villa were wearing the home kit of Claret Blue. So you had a Coke can that was uh, burgundy with the, the blue, burgundy, sorry, Claret with the blue stripes uh, down it. It looked a little bit like a Cherry Coke can. I think Cherry Coke had that sort of colour later in the decade. But the Man United kit, they wore their Newton Heat half. So to see a Coca-Cola can in sort of green and yellow, very bright, was, was very strange. So I, re- I liked the idea behind that. Simple but very eye-catching. Uh, another one I remember was when Bolton played Liverpool, so they had a, Bol- a Coca-Cola can that was blue and white. Again, very different. Uh, McDonald's is w- most famous as well for Scott Parker, of course. He did the, the famous advert when I think he was uh, a teenager and he did all those kick-ups, um, which was quite ironic when you think about it because the last thing Scott Parker's probably remembered for is being a skillful player. He's, he's a hard worker, fantastic uh, sort of finisher as well. Great, you know, from long range shots, but he was never really one for the skills. But a lot, he showed some proper techers, I suppose they call it these days, by doing the kick ups there when he was a kid. Um, obviously, Alan Shearer did one later in the decade as well when he walked into McDonald's and I think the uh, the teller behind the till wanted his autograph instead of him signing for the the the, uh, the check or whatever it was back in then. We used to sign for things. Remember that? Then there's chip and pin or Apple Pay. Uh, Ian Wright did uh, Chicken Tonight. That's another advert, very classic one. Uh, a lot of food and drink, actually. When you think Kevin Keegan teamed up with a Honey Monster and Sugar Puffs for an ad in 97. Uh, Glenn Hoddle and Brian Clough uh, did um, Shredded Wheat. And then there was uh, Ryan Giggs again. He did Quorn. Tony Adams did Tang Team in 1998, which um, were which for Jaffa Cakes. And Roy King even did Snickers. And, of course, Ron Axon dressed in medieval garb for the Carling ad. And talking of Ron Atkinson, oh, what a segue that was, eh? Here we are going to break then for my little 90s tidbits and, and talk to Big Ron himself. Um, he's got a new book out and he talks to us about the book, about his time at Sheffield Wednesday, Aston Villa, Harchester United, of course, and that famous instance sitting in the Ron dugout at Nottingham Forest. So here's me speaking to Ron Atkinson early in the week on AK90s. Ron Atkinson, welcome to Alive and Kicking. Thank you so much for talking to us. Um, firstly, let's talk about the book. You've got a new book out. Um, why did you decide to release it now and uh, tell us about it? 
Well, basically, I was approached, would I do it? Would I be prepared to do a book? I've, um, you know, I've done one or two in the past, and uh, they said, well, you, you know, it's 15 years or so since you did, you last did a book, and the last happened in football, and, you know, you've been right there to sort of uh, see all the cha- various changes that have occurred, and you'd have plenty to offer on it. Absolutely, it's a, it's a great book, but we're a 90s podcast, so that's talk about that uh, decade of your career, very prominent as well. Um, let's kick off with Sheffield Wednesday, your time there. Um, a club at the time, pretty much sort of a sleeping, sort of not quite a giant, but quite a sleeper club, but you memorably won the League Cup with them uh, in 91. What was that like to, um, to beat Manchester United? Well, that was a great occasion. But, I mean, I, that's when I go to Sheffield now, um, the number of uh, Wednesday fans that come up to me and say that that's that is the best day they can remember it in, you know, in their supporting career sort of thing. Um, I mean, we had a good side. The year before we got relegated with a record number of points, we went down with 43 points, which is unheard of virtually. I mean, you can, nowadays, you virtually qualify for Europe almost with that many. Um, but we kept the side, we kept the team together more or less. Um and next year we played some. I knew I knew we'd be a good team in the top division. I, I wonder whether our style would be suited for the set, what was then the second division. But it, because we we had a lot of quality, a lot of good passers, um, but we went up playing that way. Um, I remember us playing at um, Leicester in one of the early games. You'd be Leicester four or something. I remember David Pleat saying he was the manager then at Leicester. This is the best display of. Uh, that's the movie he'd ever seen in that division. So we went, and then we, we had the cup run going, and um, ironically enough, when we played United in the final, it was a match I was very, very confident we would win. Mm. Um, sometimes you hope you'll win, sometimes you, you do have a confidence, but you also um, have a fear that maybe it might not be your day. I never had any doubt that day uh, in the events leading up to the game that we were going to win it. And that's that's what we did. Um, we took special special precautions. Lee Sharp was their danger man at the time and we more or less marked him out of the game. Um, and, you know, we made it a big occasion. Um, you know, a couple of days before the final, I took all the players and the wives down to London took everybody out for dinner at a posh restaurant in London, nice restaurant, and then moved the team out of London out into the country on the day before the match. And we tried to fish them out, but they didn't work particularly hard, or unusually hard that morning, because um, I wanted the players tired, so they all slept, and sleep, sleep they did. They nearly all overslept by the time they started to leave for Wembley. Yeah. Great, great times, and obviously a, a great win for just winning, like you say, it's still lauded back then. You moved on to, to Aston Villa after Wednesday, of course, um, and we remember that first season in the Premier League where you, you went to Manchester United toe-to-toe for the title and almost, almost won it. What was it for you that that Villa team just didn't quite manage to get to that to that title that year? What, what, what did they just miss out for reasons? First and foremost, United were a better team than us. We were a good team, by the way, mm. but they were a better team, I knew that. But I thought... The way we were going, there was no there was no pressure on us at all. The pressure was all on United because they got this thing where the year before they should have won it and didn't. 
Um, and I, th- I think two big turning points that season, the two, up until Christmas, I thought the best two front players in the country as a pair were Dean Sanders and Dalian Atkinson. Mm. Dalian got injured. We played, ironically enough, Sheffield Wednesday just before Christmas when Dalian rifled two beauties in. Two days later in training, he got injured and didn't play again, I think, till it was Easter. Now, that broke us up a little bit because those two were on fire. They had a great sort of partnership. They complemented each other very, very well. Um, so that was a big, big turning point. I think the second was, ironically enough, Easter. We, we were playing Coventry, and we drew no score with Coventry at Villa Park in a very poor game. But as I came off the pitch, they're all saying, Sheffield Wednesday are beating United, you know. And it seemed an eternity, and then somebody said, Sheffield Wednesday have e- uh, sorry, United have equalised. And I remember saying to somebody, they'll play now until they win. Mm. And they did. And I think that was the moment you thought their name might be on it. Because I think if they'd have lost that game, I, I think that their confidence might have got shot at. Mm. You remember the game with Fergie? Of course, yeah, Steve Bruce, yeah. And flying onto the pitch and Brucey. Now, I know a lad that played in that game, Carlton, big Carlton Palmer. And he said to me, he said, I went over to the linesman because they'd have to make a change, a temporary referee. He said, I went over and said, how long left? The linesman said, two minutes of extra time, of added time. He said, six minutes later, we're still winning. And he said it was about another five minutes later before they got the winning goal. So it did go on. I mean, that was the onset, really, of Fergie time. Mm. Yeah, big man. I mean, Trevor Francis, Trevor Francis said they won, they won it in the second leg. That was his quote. <laughs> yeah. They won the second leg, yeah. yeah. It wasn't to be for Villa, though. But that, that team kind of did stay together and went on. Of course, you won the League Cup again with Villa in, in 94. I mean, how did that win compared to the Wednesday? What do you see was the better win for you as a manager? Oh, the better win was the Villa win because the United then were a better side. The United had got a real team together, a side that I think Sir Alex still rates. I think he rates his favourite side because he had a lot of character in there. There were was, was strong people in there. He got Bruce and Palliser at the back, Michael Ingall, um, Dennis Irwin, people like that in midfield, Keane Inns. Giggs and Kanchelskis in wide areas and Cantona and uh, Hughes up front. So, they, you know, they've got, they got a lot of physical presence and a lot of uh, strong characters in the side. So, bearing in mind, that was a better team than the team we beat we beat at Sheffield. Mm-hmm. What was what was what went right on that day for you then? Was it just a, a brilliant performance from your team or were United the for you? What, what went right for Villa? Because it was quite comfortable well, in the end. Well, yeah, the scoreline was comfortable. It wasn't that comfortable as a game, to be fair. Um, what had happened, we'd run out of a bit of form. We, we, leading up to the semi-final, um, our league form had been okay. You know, we were still chasing a top four spot, if you like. And then after we won the semi-final, our league, our league form went. One or two of the players, whether, whether they did have one eye on the final, I'm not sure. Um, and I, I decided when we, we played United earlier in the season and we tried to, we tried to, Cantona was obviously the catalyst at the time. And we tried a situation where a man marked him, or Earl Barrett man marked him. And Earl did very, very well. Played brilliant. 
except for the fact Cantona scored two. Um, and it, I always said he only had two kicks and they were both goals. So for the semi-finals, but we've got to somehow as a match their midfield with power. And Graham Fenton have been on loan to a couple of places, Leicester and uh, West Brom, and have played very well there. And he was a strong lad. He was he was basically more a striker. Mm. But he had played in midfield. I'd seen him play in midfield. So leading up to the final, I left out, I left out Gary Parker, who was a smashing player, and Ray Houghton, who were very, very, very good technical players, good footballers. But I thought we had to have, we had to try and match them in midfield with more power. And I, I played what was then our most powerful midfield. I played um, Graham Fenton, Andy Townsend, and Kevin Richardson. The other thing we did that day, we moved Daly Atkinson onto the right wing and Tony Daly on the left and played Dino up the middle on his own, Dean Sanders. And I said to the two wide lads who were flying machines, if you don't want to be tracking back defensively, then make sure their fullbacks are running towards their own goal. Mm. And uh, that, that worked very well for us because, you know, Daly and Daly got the first goal and Tony Daly... Tony would have scored, and then Kinchelski, unfortunately, handled on the line with the last kick of the match, and we got a penalty for it. You know, we'd have been better off. It would have been, it'd have been more acceptable if Kinchelski had let the ball go in, in the net and stayed on the field. But that was a, you know, that is that was a great, uh, great result for us. And we played, we played with people like Paul McGrath were absolutely magnificent that day. We had some very, very strong performances that day. Mm-hmm. You, you later went on to Coventry and then Sheffield Wednesday. I mean, you, there were brief spells, but what can you remember of your time at Highfield Gray? I think I remember rightly you having once have a go at uh, Andy Gray in the Sky Studio. Was that during your time at Coventry? Well, it was, but it wasn't quite. It wasn't quite how. It, I mean, I didn't realise that that ago. Um, <laughs> Richard Keyes, who was a Coventry fan, had said something after the game. Andy was a mate of mine, and and I said, I said, I said, well, how come you just played their their player, their goalkeeper, their best man of the match? If if we didn't do anything, I said, you just played their goal. I said we conceded a first minute goal by Jason Dodd, and then we we played quite well that day, and. You know, it wasn't to be our day, but I, you know, I wasn't going to listen to people criticising our team for what they said was lack of desire. And when I later spoke to Andy, Andy had a right, and apparently they had a right go at Richard Keys. He said, you know, he said Richard Keys had, had used him to an extent. And I, when I saw the interview days later, Andy, Andy was never on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. Great moment. It showed you, you wore your heart in your sleeve, Ron, which we loved you about the 90s. One other moment I have to ask you about, and it's remembered in the 90s, was your, your debut manager at Nottingham Forest and, and you sitting in the dugout, but perhaps uh, the wrong uh, one. Yeah. <laughs> you know what, uh, yeah. What I'd done, I'd flown over from... I was actually in Barbados when they rang me to take the job. So I flew back over night personally. I went I got to the uh, city ground... You know, I'm doing the walking out photographers and all that. Now, in the past, what, where I'd get mixed up, in the past, there was only, the visitor's dugout was always in the corner. Mm-hmm. It was a thing Cloughy had uh, designed and specifically because you, you, you didn't get a good view of the game if you were the visiting manager. 
So when I walk along there and there's all the photographers around, I see a dugout and I automatically assume yeah. that it's home, the home dugout. When I get in and see people like Vieira and Burkamp in it, I'm thinking, well, I can't believe we're bottom of the league with these. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A classic moment, a classic moment. That ended your kind of, you sort of retired after that. But there was one yeah. club you did manage as well on our TV screens, which we remember very fondly. I actually watched it the other day on YouTube, Harchester United and, and Sky One's Dream Team. How did you get involved with that and, and did you enjoy oh, being yeah, yeah. Um I'm trying to think it what I can't think what happened with that. If somebody just approached me, I don't know who it was, they were coming out with this thing. I'd forgotten all about that actually and uh <laughs> I said, yeah and what it was from what I remember in the first part of the, the program, we got promotion, mm. and then I had a bust up with the chairman, which was very lifelike and um, <laughs> very true to life uh, about, you know, I wanted more money to to strengthen the team, and there was an argument. I said, well, from, from memory, words to the effect, well, you can stick your job, that sort of thing. I then did, I remember going back and doing something in it. Two or three years later, there was there was a lad. He, he was the only surviving member, I think. I think they called him in the program Fletch. I think his Carl name was Fletch. Yeah, Carl Fletcher, that's the one. Yeah, well, remember. Was it? Yep. Yeah. And he called me, he, he asked to see him and meet me in a hotel because apparently they'd, they'd offered him, his contract was up and they'd offered him something like eight grand or something like that. And um, it's probably the reason why I could never have become a football agent anyway because. <laughs> He wanted 20 grand. I said, Fletch, I've seen you play. You're lucky to be offered eight grand. If I were you, I'd snap the hand off now with that. Because no way in the world will you get what you're after. Um, yeah, that, well, that was that was a few, two or three years later. But maybe, I don't know. Mm-hmm. A lot of fun, yeah. a lot of fun. But that's what was fine. We'll just talk about the 90s. I mean, you managed a lot of players in, in that sort of decade. Um, who, who would you see, pick out a, a couple of the best players you managed uh, around that time? Uh, in the 90s, I mean, the best player I've ever managed would be Brian Robson, mm. but, you know, that was, that was a bit earlier than that. In the 90s, the best players I managed would, would be uh, Paul McGrath. Mm. I, t- I tell you what, at Sheffield Wednesday, we had some very good players, very good players. Roland Nielsen at right back was a good player. Um, in midfield, we had John Sheridan, who was a terrific People were saying they were good with Sheridan. I said you could put him in the same category as Glenn Hoddle. He was a great player. Yes, Carlton was a terrific player. David Hurst was a was a super centre forward. And, mm. You know, injuries held him back. So there were good players there. I always say John Harks uh, as well. I thought, always thought John Harks was a good player. Oh, Harks was there. And and I'll tell you what they were. They were great lads as well. Mm. You know, I, I think in my career I've been very lucky. That I've had, um, I've had some super, not only good players, but great lads. You know, terrific guys. Um, at the Villa, um, we had a lot of good players there. Said McGrath was there. I tell you, it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. You talk to any Villa player that played in that time, and they, they were rave about him. Mark Bosnich, yeah. in goal. Bosnich in goal for Villa was as good as anybody that's ever played in the Premiership. What went wrong afterwards, I'm not sure, but at Villa, 
He was absolutely unbelievable. Because we had a good keeper anyway. Nigel Speed was a top mm, keeper. Top keeper, yeah. The buzz he was out of this world. Adela, he was unbelievable, I tell you. Mm. Um, Dino, Dino was good. Dino Daly and on, on his day, Daly and in big matches was always around. And we had a lot of good pros, Kevin Richardson, Andy, Andy Townsend, good defenders, Earl Barrett, people like that. Yeah, yeah we had some good players there. i tell you one of the best players, because I had him in the 80s, and I also had him in the 90s, and the, Gordon Strachan was a magician. Yeah. And he came to Coventry as an assistant manager because Howard Wilkinson had told him he was finished as a player. So he started training, Gordon, joining in training. I stopped him one day. I said, hey, you realise you are better than any player we've got here. <laughs> and we were, we were, as usual, Coventry, when we went, they were bottom of the league and every match was a relegation battle. And I played him. I got him out of retirement for a few games. And he played at Tottenham, White Hart Lane, in a game we had to win. And it was when they had the famous five, the Klinsman, Sheringham, Anderton, Barnby, and really Radicchio, I'm never sure which one it was. The famous five and yeah. Salt Campbell, Mabbott and all that. And he absolutely tore them to shreds. He ripped them to pieces that night. I mean, Justin Edinburgh was playing left back. And I saw an article by Justin, best player I've ever played against, Gordon Strachan. And he absolutely, we beat them 3-1. Brilliant result. Dion, Dion Dublin up front got a couple. And uh, I think Peter Arnold might have got the other one. But, um, yeah, we ripped, them, we ripped them to pieces that night. But it was mainly down to the Strach. Great stuff. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, Ron. It was a great trip down memory lane. Good luck with the book. Uh, we'll, we'll have to speak to you again soon. Big thanks to Ron Atkinson there. Great to speak to him. It's really weird. He's one of those voices that as soon as he's picked up the phone, I was just like, it's Big Ron. Such a colourful character of the 90s. And I know what he did later in the, the 2000s live on air is unexcusable. But it's a real shame you don't see characters like him on the tv anymore the the sort of ronisms that he used to come out with as a pundit and just the whole character the jewelry the big ron sort of ego it was just brilliant great great character from the 90s and fantastic to talk to big ron um let's carry on though with a few others uh before we finish this sort of mini episode of of ak 90s a few things that again as i said at the top of the show that we didn't quite get to go to talk to in di- in certain subjects uh we that we covered over the, the podcast last season. Um, one thing I want to talk about, um, well, we'll, we'll talk about on screen before we went to the interview and Ron Atkinson. Um, VHS videos were obviously massive in the 90s. They were the way we consumed our uh, things on screen. And I'm not sure if we talked about Do I Not Like That in the uh, when we did our on screen, but that was a great documentary about Graham Taylor um, and his awful reign as England manager and the demise and whether you know do or not like that thing came from seeing Phil Neal as his number two and and it was it's a great watch if you can still get that somewhere on YouTube you should really get that I remember trying to buy it uh in our price there we go there's a there's a name from the 90s not realizing at the time it was actually rated a 15 for because such as the sort of language in it and I must have been younger than that because I got turned down to buy it and that's to get to my, my mum to buy it but um still I've got the VHS somewhere and I'm shame I need a invest in another VHS player so I can watch that and My Summer with Dez which was another great uh, video which was came out in the 90s which was first a, a TV show uh, that BBC produced around Euro 96 that was another fantastic 
uh, watch. That is on YouTube, so no need to get your VHSs for that one. I've actually sat and watched it on YouTube. So if you haven't seen it, Neil Morrissey, Rachel Weisz, and Des Lynham, My Summer with Des. If you like Euro 96, go back and watch that. And once you've done that, listen to our two Euro 96 podcasts um, from the end of last season, because that was a great look back on that as well. But I used to like the VHS collections as well. So at the end of every season, you used to get the goals galore and the fight for the championship. Uh, and, and obviously the season video, I still buy the, the season DVD is now. I've still got every season DVD for, for QPR sitting in the office next to me. Um, there was also a couple of collections in the 90s called the Pain and Glory and the Golden Goals collection. So they used to do them of each team. Um, the, go- the Pain and the Glory was... Um, just like a set to a load of montages, which I do bloody love a montage uh, of different themes uh, of different teams. And the Golden Goals was exactly what it says on the tin, um, the best goals uh, of, of that team. So they were they were a great collection in the 90s. Danny Baker's own goals and gaffes. Um, I think that's still cited now when someone does uh, something wrong in a football game. That'll be on a Danny Baker video that will, because such as they became such a big thing. I mean, I think later everybody did one from Danny Dyer to Dan Walker to Robbie Savage. I think everyone's done a gaffes video these days. But Dan, uh, Danny Baker was the original guy to do that, um, and they were brilliant. I still the one I always remember. Uh, must have been the video I watched over and over again as a kid. Uh, was the Andy Dibble gaff where he was holding the ball with one hand, shouting at his defenders, and then didn't notice that Gary Crosby came around the back of him, headed the ball out of his hand, and scored. And the, and the referee allowed the goal because he didn't have two hands on, on the ball, much to his uh, annoyance. But that's one that always sticks out. And of course, you can't talk gaffs without talking about Randy Rosenthal, which is widely regarded as one of the worst misses of all time when he was playing for, for Liverpool against Aston Villa. He rounded the keeper open goal in front of him and somehow hit the bar that's a classic own goal that one and um, we talked about adverts and on screen um i just wanted to quickly talk about things like uh we talked a lot about magazines we had a great podcast in the magazine we spoke to um the guys behind 90 minutes um and shoot magazine um some things we didn't manage to cover during that day was uh england magazine which was a brief launch in 1995, which was the official magazine of the England national team. It launched with Alan Shearer on the front cover, and it said, putting the grrr back into England. Don't think that quite worked, did it? Uh, but it was it was created to cash in on the pre-Euro 96 hype. And I mean, I enjoyed it because I, I love magazines, still do. Uh, it didn't last very long. And the I mean, the first issue had Alan Shearer on the front cover, I said, and it featured interviews with Jamie Redknapp, Darren Anderton, and Michelle Gale, now there's a random name from the 90s, the ex-Mrs. Mark Bright. Um, it, it spanned a year before disappearing, but I mean, I think it's a good concept. I mean, I don't know if it would work today because I don't think there's a need for a magazine when you have social media and, and websites and everything like that. But at the time, it was a really good read and it's a shame it didn't last very long. Uh, when Saturday Comes was something we didn't mention that's still going now, fantastic fanzine come magazine that's uh, I'm pleased to see is still doing a great job. Um, in the football market. Um, there was a similar one in the 90s called Red Card that tried to, to sort of emulate when Saturday comes and, and try to do it in a more kind of disturbing fashion that wasn't very good, to be honest. Collections is another one. We uh, did a great podcast on collections last season. Uh, we went through the, the great stuff from Merlin, like the, the first ever sticker album and the Pogs and the cards, Panini and all the stuff that they did around the tournament time and their sticker albums. The great pro set collection with a big old binder. Uh, Orbis, another big binder that used to get week by week. The, the World Cup coins, Upper Decks 94 World Cup collection with the 
Alexi Lalas card looking like a rock star. All the stuff that used to come in food and drink, like your World Cup soccer shields and your PG Tips cards. The Pro Match collection, uh, which were the illustrated football pictures, which were fantastic. I think Ray Parler always sticks out on that one. Anders Limpa was another funny picture as well. But a couple of collections I don't think we completely mentioned um, from around the 1998 World Cup were two England collections. Firstly, the, the England photo album, which was pretty much as it says. Um, it used to be photos that came in sort of squad shots, like the ones you used to get headshots, like used to get in club shots behind the till in, in the club of all the players, uh, action poses and images from training. And they were all kept in sort of like a small little binder, like a proper photo album. They were six by fours, the sort you used to get printed when you used to go into some like happy snaps or, or something like that, not the uh, not just sticking your memory card in your computer like you do these days. Um, and it used to be rocked by the till, by the stickers and everything, but it obviously didn't do very well because they didn't ever do it again. But I had the collection, along with the BP England cards as well, which was another sort of series you could get at the time. These were based on sort of the cigarette cards from the 1950s and 1960s. Um, you'd go into a BP station, you'd spend £10, and I think you'd get a couple of cards, and they were sort of illustrated little bits from, you could get of Alan Shearer, Bex, in Seaman, all the sort of 1998 squad, Glenn Hoddle being the manager, um, I used to come in a book that used to have to stick the stickers or cards in. They weren't stickers, so you had to literally glue the cards into the book, which made all the pages stick together. Which So you had to do it quite precisely with your prick stick and things like that. A couple of innuendos in there. I'm just going to move on, though, to another collection, um, Netbusters, which was kind of combining what I was talking about before um, on VHS and a collection at the same time. It was football's essential monthly video. I think it was the only one, so I don't know about being essential. And it hit the shops in March 1995. And it was effectively a magazine in video format that featured all the latest football action, behind-the-scenes stuff, um, and other bits and bobs. I think they were about an hour, and they had segments like Paul Elliott's Soccer Academy, Dean Holdsworth on Street Soccer, which are two things I don't think should mix very well, uh, and look back at how football books were invented and things like that. And it was all presented by Julia Bradbury, who I think still pops up every now and then on our TV screens. I think at the time she was working on GMTV and Wish You Were Here, things like that. Uh, and some bloke called Simon Powell. No idea who he was. Obviously didn't do very much before or after Netbusters, but he fronted this sort of short-lived magazine video collection. I think it only went six issues and, and the seventh never came out, so which is disappointing. But again, I thought it was a good idea, but again, I, I, it didn't cotton on. It wasn't readily available in enough places, so that was a quick 90s fix that didn't happen very quick, didn't happen again. Uh, something else that didn't happen again, and it's, this is a collection that I don't think I've ever met a single other person that's ever remembered it, apart from me. Um, I don't know if I was the only one that collected it, I imagined it, or the news agents next to me had this mysterious collection they created themselves. Um, but it was called Football Magic, and it was right at the end of the decade, so we're talking about 99 going into the 2000s. And no, it's not a joint venture between Alex Ferguson and Paul Daniels, it's a proper binder, sort of week by week, Orbis style collection. And it had things like uh, tips, how to how to volley, how to shoot, uh, alongside club profiles, player profiles. And used to fill in the binder every week. But one week it just stopped coming out. And you never got to fill that binder. And I, obviously not many people bought it because, as I said, nobody seems to remember it but me. Um, Football Magic was a terrible name for it as well. Um, I'll put a lot of these on Twitter. So if you do remember it, get in touch because then I won't feel so crazy that I was the only one that ever collected it. But yeah, collections, I mean, they were all a big, big part of the 1990s. Um, so do go back and listen to that one. We had some great memories of them. The guys brought in some great stuff. I brought in some stuff myself, actually, for that show. And I was on the train and I had this massive bag of, of 90s football sticker albums and car collections and the binders. And I was getting some really funny and interesting looks. So, But you should 
should have said hello if we ever see me on a train rat carrying random 90s memorabilia which happens more often than you think say hello and we can have a chat uh, about uh, 1990s football because i'm always up for that as, as you can well imagine uh, something we definitely haven't mentioned on the podcast so far is um quite something that's massive that happened in the 1990s i don't think we managed to find a theme to let it fit um so it seemed sort of poignant to do it now and that was the book fever pitch and now for anyone who's never read fever pitch um you don't have firstly you don't have to be an arsenal fan yes the book is about arsenal Uh, i'm not an arsenal fan myself i have friends who are arsenal fans but the book is about being a football fan and the sort of emotional ride that you go on regardless of what club uh that, that you support it was published in 1992 and it's a sort of autobiographical tale of nick hornby the writer and his love affair for arsenal through the 1960s through to 1990s uh, and it's told in seasons not in years which was really really clever as well and it's an account of what being a football supporter really means and i suppose the roller coaster ride that goes with it how your club becomes not just a football team but a friend a partner and kind of a commitment for life and you, you go through the highs the lows the love the hate the being selfish, the being unreasonable, how one takes defeat and how how a defeat... And this one always sort of restify with me because it's kind of like if your team loses at the weekend, it really kind of puts a damper on the whole whatever you're doing for the rest of the weekend, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't affect me like it used to, but during this sort of the period that he talks about and sort of the period I was growing up, especially in the late 90s and, and going into the next decade when football was the all and above all everything, it usually really affects your kind of mood and everything. And this book kind of, it did completely sum all that up, the perils of being a football fan. And it was so, it, it was just so different to having the night, you know, because football was still going through the back end of the 80s and early 90s and the hooliganism and it, football still had that stigma to it. And this book really kind of changed. It kind of, it suggested that it kind of crossed the divide in terms of class. I mean, I'm not going to get too much into that, but that's what this book did. It was a proper novel about football by a, a, very, a writer who was very established, very well versed and it, it turned into absolute phenomenon it, it's it's pro- it's probably too easy to claim that fever pitch was entirely responsible for a new class of football fan um but it did open minds and the market at both ends of the spectrum and pave way for a drum a genre that is now the norm sort of in 2030 so at 20 years on the book is still being read by new generations to be honest and it's, it is a fantastic read um, as i said you don't have to be an arsenal fan to appreciate it um, it's actually spawned a film as well. In 1997, Hornby wrote a scheme, a screenplay adaptation for the film Fever Pitch. Um, Colin Firth's in it and Paul Ashworth. Um, and it's sort of centred around the 1988-89 First Division Championship season for um, Arsenal and that famous night that Michael Thomas um, scored that goal at Anfield. And it's a great watch. Again, there's lots of great lines in it that doesn't mean you have to be an Arsenal fan to appreciate it. Um, but be a football fan and understand... Um, what it's like to go through it so yeah fever pitch was definitely something that we haven't really gone into again we may do it it may cross into a theme later in the season but I wanted to mention it on, on this one as well talking to books as well I mean 90s weren't complete and this is probably still I hope it's still the same for kids out there as well Christmas you always had to have an annual didn't you whether it be the shoot annual the match annual the topical times football annual that was another one uh, the match 1992 soccer annual I'm looking at here that you know they were brilliant. I used to sit there for hours on Christmas Day and Boxing Day just looking through these annuals. And I know I went into Smith's the other day and saw that Shoot and, and Match still do annuals. So I hope that kids are still reading those because it's a fantastic... We, we actually 
actually going to do one at kick at some point and every year we go to try and organize it and it just hasn't quite happened for for one reason or another but at some point i'd love to do kick magazine the magazine i work for that does football in the 2016 not in the 90s but i'd love to do an annual for that as well that would be absolutely fantastic before we go i've got just a few other little tidbits i wanted to mention from the 1990s um it's probably still stuff we haven't mentioned that i can do another one of these later in the season but um in the book alive and kicking the ultimate guide to 90s football cheap plug we called this section not forgetting so there are a couple of things that again these are also things that I'm, I'm not i sometimes feel like i'm the only one that remembers them um they were firstly the football nuts yep you have no idea what i'm talking about already do you um they were little ornaments that you used to see uh, kind of at market stalls and in certain shops, sort of nitpicky, sort of sort of nat tat rat tat. What am I trying to say? Tidbit? I don't know. Those sort of shops, anyway. And they were literally nuts. So they look like walnuts painted with football kits on. And I had, yeah, I'm going to say again. And I had a QPR one. A couple of there were different versions of them, but they used to have every team. Um, I think in the book we've got a picture of a Celtic one. But if you ever had a football nut. Um, please put them on Twitter because, again, it'll make me feel like I'm not the only one who collected this tat-tat. That was the word I was looking for um, in the 1990s. So, brilliant football nuts. Um, another bit of tat as well, window banners. Do you remember those I'd rather be watching window banners? These used to be on the side of seaside shops as you walk past and they'd be in every team. Yeah, I had a, I, those were something that I always had in my window. Support, Even though my window looked on my back garden, the only person that could see them was my family. I would let them know that I'd rather be watching QPR than whatever else I was doing. Club call. Club call. That was something in the 1990s, wasn't it? Yep, you didn't have Sky Sports News. You didn't have the website. You didn't have Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. You got your news by ringing an 0800 number and some automated phone system to tell you all the latest news from the club. God. That now sounds archaic, doesn't it? <laughs> sounds like the oldest thing possible. But all the league clubs had their own line and they provide interviews with the players. They had transfer news, big game previews. And I think it was all for a premium rate call. So I don't think my parents were too happy with that. But what made it worse was that tempting yet usually completely made up headline that ran across Teletext where they used to advertise club calls. So you'd be on Teletext checking the scores or checking the latest stories. And then at the bottom it'd be... London club linked with Italian superstar ring club call to find out more. It was kind of like those sort of banners you see at the bottom of the internet pages now. They were the first versions of that that used to be on Teletext and it sort of made you call these numbers. I know my phone bill ranked up really high because I've kept calling the, the club call line. But it, it was the way we found out our news in the 1990s. We didn't have the Twitter, the instant that we have now, which is, you know, it's kind of, in a way, it's kind of sweet. Um, but I kind of prefer the, the version that I can just click of a, a mouse and get the latest news rather than call an 08 number. I do now I'm a parent as well. My child rang up a, a phone bill like I did back in the 1990s. So there are a few things that, I mean, again, I could go through a lot more. I haven't mentioned things like club membership packs, happy meals, jibber jabbers. Um, I mean, we did a podcast on computer games, but I think we pretty much covered everything in that. Apart from football manager, well, championship manager, as it was called in the 1990s. But I'm still planning to do a podcast on that completely. Hopefully with uh, Miles Jacobson, uh, Jacobson, who is the man behind championship manager stroke football manager. So hopefully that will come later in the season and I can wax lyrical about Kennedy Bakasioglu 
and Totens Olamakuku. So that will come later in the season. Um, but if again, if I've mentioned anything that you, that sparked a memory for you, please do go on Twitter and share it because it's I love it when people share something that they found in their loft or their garage or they just found, that she's actually sitting on their shelf next to them like me. So do get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. It's at AK90s. So keep in touch. Um, I must add a quick shout out to the guys at Proper Magazine as well. Um, I recently bought some mugs from them um, that are in the sort of design of free classic kits from the 90s. So the Man United sort of maple leaf blue shirt from 1992. The classic Arsenal banana skin, bruised banana skin uh, from the same era. And the Liverpool sort of 90s sort of candy kit that had the kind of uh, white kind of sort of speckles on the red kit they made three mugs in the style of those they're now sitting on my desk along with my euro 96 inspired mug that was by the same guys if you haven't seen it check go on twitter and check out what i put a picture on there early in the week so they're a fantastic bit of 90s tat if you like united tat like i do proper magazine are doing loads of it at the moment um, the guys at monday hour who've been on the podcast magazine are also behind it so get following both of them um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks so uh, keep your eye again on Twitter and I'll tell you the exact date um, hopefully talking kits hopefully talking with uh, a kit expert himself um, so keep an eye on that thank you for listening to me I hope I haven't droned on too long and I've sparked a few sort of nostalgic memories in your brain from the 1990s if there's anything we haven't covered please get in touch but until then keep it 90s <laughs>